I would invite you just uh, this morning to, let's look. We're gonna look in Deuteronomy chapter eight. Deuteronomy chapter eight. Just to think about Thanksgiving this morning and to think about how, we, how it is that we grow in Thanksgiving. Deuteronomy chapter eight, you know the, you know the background of Deuteronomy. This is a, the name of the, the book means second law. Deuteros in Greek means second, namos meaning law. So that's where that weird kind of name comes from. But Deuteronomy chapter eight, and, and Moses is literally on the edge of the promised land, and he is about to lead them in, and he's encouraging them to remember the words that the Lord has spoken, to remember the commands that he has commanded. He says in verse eight, the whole commandment that I command you today, shall, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that Yahweh swore to your fathers. It's kind of the main idea that the Lord is giving them there in this passage. And the whole point is so that they will learn the lessons of grace that they have learned over the last 40 years. I don't think it's any exaggeration to say that there is a gratitude crisis in our culture today. I'm so glad that what we have seen this morning is nothing like that, that we are a church that is full of thankfulness, that is full of gratitude to the Lord and to one another. We are so thankful for that. And yet there is a gratitude crisis, I think. We're not exaggerating to say that. We have become a nation of grievance, not a nation of gratitude. In fact, according to the British Journal of Social Psychology, it says that only 10% of Americans responded that they regularly and often experience the emotions of gratitude. Now, I don't know where in the world they got those numbers or how they came up with that, but I think experience would seem to suggest something like that. It has become such a problem that there is now an entire movement, a gratitude movement. Uh, there are entire departments of psychology and colleges that are devoted to the science of gratitude in the fields of what they call positive psychology. We become a culture of grievance, not a culture of gratitude. And the scriptures have a lot to say about this, have a lot to say about this. All the way through the Bible, we see examples, commands, encouragements, to be thankful. In fact, our thankfulness is a measure to the degree that we recognize God's sovereignty. I don't think there's any exaggeration in that either. Uh, we quoted Psalm 22 a second ago. Psalm 22 says that you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. I think the more we are gracious to God, the more we express thankfulness. It's a measure of our understanding of the Lord's lordship in our lives. We see that it's one of the goals of missions in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 15. Paul says, it is all for your sake so that as grace extends to more and more people, that's missions, why? It may increase thanksgiving. I love how John Piper says, missions exist because worship does not. And so 
It's also how we acknowledge the goodness of God. In fact, ungratefulness really is a sign of immaturity, is it not? It's a sign of childishness. It is childish to be unthankful. Look at Ephesians chapter five, verse four. Here's what he says. He says, let there be no filthiness, no foolish talk, no crude joking, which are out of place. That is all childish speech, is it not? Instead, let there be thanksgiving. It is, it is immaturity to be unthankful. It is, it is childish to be ungrateful. We have become a nation of children, have we not? We have become a nation of childishness, of, of just petulance. And as the church, we need to make sure that nothing like that is, is mistaken for Christianity. The sign of mature maturity in the Christian life is that we are thankful. And this passage kind of shows us that process and how that works. You see, uh, in Romans chapter one, one of the first descriptions of the sinful nature is that they are unthankful. It is a, it is a, a sign of, of irredemption. It is a sign of fallenness. It is, a, it is something that we as fallen people are bent toward to be unthankful thankful. And it is the work of Jesus Christ in our life that brings us back. It's the more we suppress the knowledge of God, the more unthankful we will be. The Lord knows this, and that's why he gives his people this passage that we see in Deuteronomy. In other words, if we want to grow in our thankfulness, we need to press toward maturity in Christ. We don't want to be immature Christians who are marked by bitterness and ungratefulness. We want to press toward maturity so that we may grow in thankfulness. Christians are the ones I think we have the most to be thankful. We, are, we should be the most thankful people because we recognize that every good and perfect gift is given by the Father of lights in whom there is no variation. We recognize that. We believe that. We live by it. And so how are we to mature and, 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 and in essence grow in thanksgiving? Just very quickly, number one, remember where the Lord has brought us. Remember from where the Lord has brought us in verses two and five. He tells them, you shall remember the whole way that Yahweh, your God, has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commands or not. Remember, is the first instruction that he gives to them that they were to remember the last 40 years. It was 40 years of hardship. It was 40 years of devastation. It was 40 years of death. It was 40 years where they came right up to the promised land and yet their fathers refused to go in. And now an entire generation of Israel has lost their lives. And now this is the new generation ready to go into the promised land. And, Lord, and the Lord tells them, don't forget don't forget, remember, during these years, God was doing something. He's telling them not just to remember it because it was hard. 
But remember it because the Lord was doing something. Number one, he says that it was to humble you. It was to humble you. I led you through all of this to humble you. How? By testing to see what was in your heart. You say, well, wait a minute. The Lord had to test us to see what was in our heart. That doesn't make sense. He's God. He knows us. He knows every hair on our head. He knows everything about us. Sounds kind of odd for him to say that, but he, may, but he clarifies this in verse three. He says, and he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with Hannah, which you did not know, that your fathers did not know, that he might make you understand. You see, the point was not to tell God something that he didn't know. The point was to tell them something that they needed to know. They needed to understand. They needed to know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. To bring them to the end of their self so that they recognize their total dependence on God and his goodness. It wasn't to destroy them. God first humbled them so that he could then shape them. We see in verse five, he says, remember, he says, remember here in verse five, know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so Yahweh, your God, disciplines you. It was to shape them. 40 years in the wilderness, their clothing did not wear out. Their shoes did not go out. Their feet did not swell. He's divinely preserving them to shape them into his image and teach them and discipline them as a father disciplines a child. God's desire was to make a people and a nation for himself. And so he, he humbled them and shaped them into this. And yet for all this, it didn't go so well, did it? it? Seemed like every time, at every point, they murmured, they disobeyed, they complained. Moses' own brother and sister turned against him at one point. Over and over and over again, they showed that they are a rebellious people. And I believe that's why, that's exactly what the point was so that they would recognize that they are not their own saviors. And that is why, beloved, that when you turn into Matthew chapter four, you see that the nation recognized that they needed a savior. And now Jesus in his own wilderness experience, when he is literally at the point of starvation, every bone, every muscle, every tissue in his body is screaming out for one thing and it's food. And when Satan comes and tempts him at that very point and says, turn these stones into bread, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy chapter chapter eight, verse three, and says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You see, Jesus is succeeding at the very point where Israel failed. Jesus is standing in God at the very point where Israel rejected God. Like Israel, Jesus is in the wilderness. He's wandering like Israel. He's allowed to go hungry even to the point of starvation. Like Israel, Jesus is tempted by Satan himself nonetheless to sin about turning stones into bread. And yet precisely where Israel failed, Jesus succeeded. Israel failed to show that they needed a savior. Jesus passed to show that he is the savior. Christ brought us to a point where we were at the end of ourselves knowing that we are sinful. Is this not all of our testimony? Is this not where all of us found ourselves? 
recognizing that I cannot save myself? Is this not where each and every one of us was brought from? I remember Paul in Philippians chapter three, verses four through 11, I won't read it all for sake of time. He says, every advantage that I was given, I was born into advantage. I was given the best education. I had all the, all the best things that being a Jew had to offer. And yet all of those things I count now as rubbish for the surpassing value of knowing Christ and him crucified. You see, it is in Christ that we have this wonderful reinterpretation of our lives that all of the issues that we went through, all of the problems that we faced, all of the burdens that we had were all the things that God used to bring us to the end of ourselves so that we recognize our sin so that we would then turn around and see our Savior. And we recognize that we cannot live by just our own efforts anymore but we must live by the word incarnate, Jesus Christ. We must live by him and him alone. Where was it that Jesus brought you from? Do you remember? Maybe he brought you through a broken home. Maybe he brought you from a life of despair, a life of trouble, devastating loss, rejection. Or maybe it was a life of privilege. Maybe if it may be a life that would have led to arrogance, pride, vanity, a life that was leading to the path of destruction, the very, the very things that caused you to recognize that you need a savior. Where was it that God brought you from? Do you remember that? Beloved, how can we be anything but thankful when we remember what Christ has brought us from? a sinner destined for hell, separated from God for all eternity. How can we be anything less than thankful? So remember where the Lord brought us, but remember number two and finally, where the Lord is bringing us. In Deuteronomy chapter eight, verses six and following, God again reminds them once again to keep their commandments and, and only here there's a new twist instead of living in a harsh wilderness desert where there is no food and very little natural water. Now they are coming to a good land. Now they are coming in verse seven to a land that is filled with brooks of water, fountains and springs flowing out in valleys and hills, a land of wheat, barley, vines, fig trees, pomegranates, olive trees, honey. You will eat bread without scarcity. You will lack nothing. Even the very stones are industrious. Rocks will be turned to iron and out of those hills you can dig copper. Just imagine how sweet that must have been to hear in Israel's ears when they have been, most of these were, were 20 years old or less whenever their parents refused to go in. For most of them, all they have ever known is dry, arid, wilderness. Imagine how sweet this must have sounded to them. Imagine how their everything in their, in, their, in their minds, everything in their soul yearned for what the Lord was promising. Imagine how amazing it must have been to sound, to hear this after being in a horrible desert for all their lives. He's bringing them into this wonderful place unlike anything they have ever experienced. It must have sounded too good to be true. It must have sounded too good to be true. And yet the Lord kept his promise to them and they entered the land. 
Beloved, this is exactly what the Lord is promising us. In fact, if you look at these, this way that the Lord is describing Palestine, there's actually a lot of similarities to the way he describes the Garden of Eden to the beginning. Brooks of water, stones, precious stones, and all of these things. Much of the description is very similar to Eden when man and God walk together. And not only that, when you look at the end in Revelation, you find many of these same kinds of descriptions. Revelation 21, 10 through 11, the costly stones. 22 verse one, the river of life that's clear as crystal that flows from the throne. Verse two, the tree of life is there to be freely eaten from. A direct, direct reference to Eden. There will be no more curse and we will be forever with the Lord serving him and seeing his face unlike anything that we have experienced here, anything that we know. And we will live once again with a full fellowship with our God. Beloved, we have the greater promise. We have the greater land. We have the greater promised land. The land of Canaan was never the Lord's ultimate goal for his people, but was only the foreshadow of the greater promise that was to come, not through Moses, but through the Messiah. It was the greater promise that was to be there. Hebrews chapter four, verses eight and nine makes this very argument. The writer says, for if Joshua had given Israel rest, he would not have spoken of another day than later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Beloved, there is a rest waiting for you. There is a rest that is waiting for each and every one of us who knows Christ. And so how do we respond? In verse six, go back to verse six. He says something very interesting here. And if you Mark in your Bibles, you might want to highlight this or underline it. But so you shall keep the commandments of Yahweh, your God. How? Two things. Number one, by walking in his ways. In other words, our practical everyday lives, we live in a way that honors him. That's how we show our thankfulness. That's how we show but not out of a sense of duty. Number two, and fear him. It's, it's not just walking in his ways out of duty, but there is a sense of worship that that walking in his way grows out of our devotion for him. This is not legalism. That's what legalists forget. They get the walking in the way down, but they forget the devotion. They forget the heart of worship. They forget the love of God. They're doing it for themselves. But beloved, we walk in the ways of the Lord. Why? Because we love him and it grows out of our love for him. There is direction, yes, but there must also be devotion. And our obedience flows out of love. We find our total and complete dependence on him. And when we do, we find our complete satisfaction in him. And what grows out of that, look at verse 10. What grows out of that, you shall eat and be full and what? And you shall bless Yahweh your God for the good land he has given you. You see the connection? We realize our dependence upon him and therefore we turn to him and find our full satisfaction in him and out of that grows a life of thanksgiving to him. So we press toward maturity, why? Because out of that grows thanksgiving. The more I am satisfied in him, the more our lives will overflow with thanksgiving. You wanna grow in thanksgiving? Deepen your worship. 
You want to deepen your worship? Increase your faith. We don't need fog machines. We don't need lights. We don't need all of that stuff. You want, you want your worship to be deepened? Deepen your faith. Your heart can only go as high as it can go deep. And so deepen your faith. Grow in your faith. Know the Lord. Pursue God with all of your heart. And you will grow in thanksgiving. You will grow in acknowledgement and knowing the Lord. So beloved, this morning I'm gonna ask you, are, are you thankful? Are you thankful? Thankful for all the blessings, yes. But does that thankfulness grow out of the biggest source of our thanksgiving, which is Jesus Christ, our Lord? Has he brought you to a place that you've come to the end of yourself so that you know that your life is totally and completely dependent, that you must not live by bread alone or by turkey alone this week, but we must live by the word incarnate. He is our life. He is our wisdom. He is our justification. He is our holiness. He is our sanctification. He is everything we need for life and godliness in this world. Let's be thankful. Amen. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for each and every testimony we heard here this morning. And I pray that each and every person that is here is thankful. We know not everybody is a public speaker. We know not everybody is, is comfortable with coming up and talking in front of everyone. And we saw some who are not comfortable doing so this morning. And Father, I just pray that you would make us a thankful people. Help us to know you and to love you with all of our hearts and all of our souls. And Lord, if there's one here this morning who doesn't know you as Savior, I pray after service they would come and they would talk and they would find out how they can know Jesus Christ and him crucified. Maybe they've come to the end of themselves this morning and now they know that they are in need of Christ. Lord, I pray, I pray whatever the need is that you would meet it in our hearts this morning. In your name we pray, amen.